How does Invesco QQQ rethink possibility? By rethinking access to innovation and the NASDAQ 100. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. So this thing's been happening in the markets, Eric. Um, things go up and suddenly things are going down and down, 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 down. Like seven weeks in a row now that the S&P is going It was a down. whole year, basically. I mean, this yeah. year has just been bad. And th- what's made this year, I think, unique is stocks and bonds down together, which is unusual. And Although crypt- I d- And crypto. And crypto. Like, er- basically everything. everything is down. There's couple things doing okay, but I think that's a little scary for people, although I try to remind people that, well, it went up together for a while based on the Fed and how accommodative they were, but obviously if they're going to pull back and not help, then it stands to reason that they might go go down together for a little while. But anyway, people freaking out, that's the big story this year, and we need to address it. So to do so, we're going to have John Mayer Chief Investment Officer of Global X ETF. He's actually been on the show before. Yeah, we did an episode called uh, Gatekeepers. I believe it was like I think we did. I think we played off of Ghostbusters. It, it was definitely Keymasters and gate, Gatekeepers. You know, it was so, such a good title because they call people at the big wirehouses like Merrill, UBS, Wells Fargo, gatekeepers, and all the ETF issuers want to get onto their shelves, so to speak, because they have massive advisors uh, connected to them that have billions of dollars. So anyway. John was working at a gatekeeper, and so was Mariana, and John now is an issuer. So John not only was at Merrill, but he managed their model portfolio, um, and now he's a Global X, which is an ETF issuer. So he's going to have a real handle on how people are handling the self, the different player types, uh, given you know the ETF uh, perspective he sits from now. And then we're also going to have your boss on, Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, no, there's something missing there. I want to say macro strategist. Oh, you know, you just call me whatever you want, really. I, I, I love the word. The, <laughs> Chief equity strategist, technically. There she is. Okay. This time on Trillions, the psychology of a sell-off. John, Gina, welcome to Trillions. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to be in person with you and have you both back on the show. Like, it's been a little bit for... For Gina, and, and it's really been a second for, for you, John. Yeah, it's very 2019, so yeah, I'm very excited to Just be pinch back. yourself. <laughs> um, Gina, I want to start with you because um, we were just talking about how Eric um, tends to make a lot of bold calls, and sometimes those calls don't all go correctly, do they? And so I'm wondering... As we approach this mid-year eval uh, kind of season, mm. you know what, what kind of not uh, my eval. Oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, it is one eighty uh, season. Yeah, you, exactly. Yeah. So I, I just want to ask. You have to do my one eighty. Uh, maybe you know we'll yeah, see. Anyways. But um, uh, it's all anonymous, Eric. Uh, this one won't be anonymous. But uh, Eric got a Fed call kind of wrong, right, Gina? So how, how, what did it, what was the call and how did it work out? You know, thankfully Eric is not responsible for the Fed call for Bloomberg Intelligence. <laughs> So we did. We did call that one right. Okay. Good um, job. I'll let Eric explain his interesting Fed theory, which we talked about the last time I was on here. Yeah, I was out of my depth for sure. But my theory was the Boomerati theory, which was that uh, all of America's retirement money is in stocks and bonds, and the people who are in mutual funds that have the most money are the boomers. I think, like, what of the of all the stock market ownership? I believe the boomers are seventy percent of it. 
And who's in control of all the rungs of power in business in Walt Washington? The boomers. So whether you have a Republican president, a Democrat, or the Fed chief, they're all what they all share in common is they're boomers. And not that they would do anything to protect their nest egg. But apparently, <laughs> inflation's more important. Yeah. What the hell? I, I totally missed that. Um, I didn't see it. Yeah. Maybe the print, I, I didn't, I just never saw it. It was like a black swan for me, but I, now that's all that matters to them and they're, they've done a 180. Yeah. Well, to be fair, we, I think the financial markets were somewhat conditioned on this notion that the Fed would always swoop in and save the financial markets as well, especially once we get past 15, kind of going toward 20% corrections, the Feds have become a very reliable player in the market over the course of the last decade and change. Always swooping in, always reversing that, policy at those nice there, lows. Yeah. It's called the Fed put for a reason. But the title of my current equity market outlook for the U.S. is Life Without a Pet Fed Put, because I do think things have changed. Things have changed pretty precipitously over the course of the last year. And you're spot on. The reason things have changed is because of inflationary conditions. The inflationary conditions combined with something we talked about on a podcast not long ago, which is the Fed's sort of temporary shift to a mandate to achieve maximum employment not so long ago, that combination has created a really messy environment for the Fed, and they're now playing catch-up to try to contain those infl- the inflation, which many people are now worried has gotten out of control and, and out of their grasp. And one thing that I really, it's set home, I look at a graph, I think it was on Nate Silver's site, most important issues in the election. Number one is inflation. Yeah. And I know the Fed's not political, but come on. I mean, this is a big deal. And do you think they might lighten up after midterms? Um, I think they're very data dependent at this point. They may lighten up after midterms if that coincides with a material deceleration in the inflation prints, which are definitely something they're worried about. But, you know, it's no surprise that the midterms are coming into focus, particularly with inflationary conditions this fast, because that's the one thing that everyone feels is, How much does it cost for me to go to the grocery store and how much does it cost for me to fill up my car or transport to and from where I need to go? And so when you have that kind of inflationary landscape, it usually impacts the president most. And then when things roll downhill from the president to other folks in Washington, the Fed can get a lot of pressure historically when we're in this kind of economic environment because the, the president suffers. I can't believe you're leaving the door cracked for Eric to like... I know. Let's have a new theory. Oil hat. I know. Yeah. yeah. There's going to be a new theory here. <laughs> okay. So, so John, I want to bring you in. We've talked a little bit about the inflationary environment, markets doing what they do this, this year, um, which is go down as well as up. Um, what has been something that sticks out to you in all of this? Well, first of all, when a big sell-off happens, it just never feels good. Like, you almost don't think it's going to happen. You don't root for a sell-off, unless you're short. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody roots for a sell-off, and inflation is very high, and the Fed has to act. We should have seen this coming, and all the Fed really can do is uh, work on the demand side. But they can't really work on the supply side, and we know there's a lot of issues on the supply side with respect to China and all the supply chain issues and semiconductors and whatnot. But with respect to what's going on, is different market participants are acting differently. Um, I would first say that, that the, the professional investors, hedge funds, got it right earlier on. They were moving out of the market pretty quickly, and retail was still buying, and we saw a lot of flows into retail. And then that started to come off more recently, and it, at the past few trading days, and this is the eighth week of a down week, 
I think some have said, this is enough. I can't really handle the pain. As you mentioned earlier, that there's boomers who are going to retire um, and I'm down 20%. That's a lot, you know, and you know, maybe let's, let's cut our losses because we've had some pretty good years. But if you look at, at, at flows on the ETF side, ETFs have been, flows have been pretty st- stable and even growing in some instances in certain areas of the market. Certainly in income, we're seeing uh, broad, bar- broad market indexes are, are holding up. So the core is really holding up. And I do think that there's repositioning on the edges, and there should be. There always should be because of changing market conditions. But remarkably, uh, at least on the ETF side, and Eric, as you mentioned, on the mutual fund side, there's a lot of outflows. But the ETF side, is fairly, they're holding up well in terms of flows. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I think this is somewhat generational. Um, Boomers are mostly in mutual funds. Do you really want to watch this? I mean, you've made so much money. Might as well just get out. So there's been $250 billion out of active mutual funds, but there's been about $250, $270 into ETFs and passives. So we see this every sell-off. But inside the passive, there is a lot of tactical repositioning. So I think, you know, you guys have like thematic ETFs, right? That's something I think people bought maybe in the bull market. As have you seen pullback there or are the people hanging in there? That is also, I just wanted to ask, like, I mean, you have this interesting thing at Global X where you have thematic, but then also some really broad-based products, right? So how, how does your portfolio perform during a sell-off like this? So, you know, we, if you look at our assets, we have income or ETFs, income and thematics, as well as country access and, and, and a few others. What you're seeing is some outflows on the thematic side, but not as much as you would expect because these are ETFs and ETFs are a collection of companies. And 
not every company performs exactly the same way. You know, you look back to the dot-com bubble, and many of the companies just went away. I mean, a few existed, of you know, Amazon and eBay and uh, Priceline, but you didn't know which one was going to make it. So Not Pets.com. <laughs> not Pets.com, not Mail.com, Boo, or like all, all sorts of names. But you, you didn't know what was going to make it, but it, in an ETF, whether it be a cloud or cybersecurity, which actually has some legs right now, you're putting a lot of different companies. And so there's actually some inherent diversification there. But overall, on the kind of the dis- disruptive technology, you're seeing, you've seen some outflows for sure, but we're actually capturing them on the income side. So when you're moving towards more towards a value tilt or a covered call fund, which is still providing you a 12% yield if it follows the NASDAQ uh, or the S&P 500, less than that, but a, a good yield, investors are saying, wow, yields are still pretty low, even though short-term rates are going up, not necessarily long-term rates, it depends. Uh, so we're capturing some on the income side. So flows have been pretty good, remarkably. Yeah, there, there's, it depends where. It's been a, certain sectors, uh, cash, uh, short-duration bond ETFs have done pretty well. It reminds me of a typical sell-off year, to be honest. And I do think that thematic ETFs probably have a little more tolerance these days because if you're in a cheap index fund of your core and you have a thematic, uh, you kind of have your basis covered. You don't have to worry about your kid's retirement being in like the cybersecurity ETF because it's a small allocation. Gina, how much of this stuff, these flows... How much does that um, work into the intel for for when you come up with sort of your overarching mm-hmm. take on the markets? Well, I I view it as a sentiment indicator more than anything. So equity markets um, certainly move very quickly, but at lows, what you tend to find is lows are formed by an outright capitulation in sentiment. And so what you want to see to frame a low in the equity market is nobody wants to own any stocks anymore at all. And they generally just sell everything. They sell not only the losers in their portfolio, but the winners, too. They just go to cash because they're terrified. That usually is what happens at lows. So I use it as a sentiment indicator. Um, Certainly, no one likes to see flows out of the equity market. But when we start to see those week after week after week outflows, it's one indicator we definitely would consider in the arsenal of indicators. How close to that moment are we? We're getting closer. I can't say that we're there yet. I mean, you know, we use a whole laundry list of indicators, but just a couple that are really meaningful. We're getting close. It's like, oh, things are falling and they're still falling, but like the sky hasn't fallen yet. They haven't, right? So just over the last week, we started to finally see some signs of capitulation in the income-oriented stocks and the low volatility stocks, the stocks that everyone flees to saying, okay, this is just a short-term correction and I'm going to get defensive. They finally started selling those off mostly because Walmart missed earnings expectations and really just kind of obliterated everyone's confidence in the retail sector. Uh, But we have not seen it as much in energy stocks, for example. 100% of the constituents of the S&P 500 energy sector are up this year. That's extremely anomalous. So instead, investors seem to still be rotating into inflation hedges within the equity market. It's a teeny tiny space within the stock market, but it's nonetheless an area where investors are hanging on. And, you know, frankly, at lows, you very consistently see less than 5% of the stocks in the S&P 500 trading above their 50-day moving average. You see momentum among the entire market crash. And we haven't seen that yet. So it's very anomalous. It doesn't feel like a true capitulation low. That said, the bond market may be the ultimate indicator here. And bond yields do appear to have peaked potentially in the short run. And that may be enough to relieve investors' concerns because 
first, first and foremost, this equity market correction is a correction because of the volatility that we're experiencing in the bond market, which reflects that inflation outlook. It's a very different type of correction than we've had in the past. And typically, the corrections we've had over the last decade and change, the bond market rallies when the equity market is selling off. And I think this is a really important point that Eric made earlier this year. That's what's truly different about this correction is the bond market is selling off. And that's the that's the creator of risk for the equity market right now. And just to go on mutual funds, bond mutual funds are, it's a total bloodbath over there. I mean, we're talking $157 billion out this year, 13 straight weeks of inflows. And they these funds always take in money, but they've had the life of Riley over the past 15 years because rates have been low and lower, but it's looking bad. And I don't see how this ends because again, they're owned by boomers. That's a constant selling pressure on bonds. So until I see that chart go from red to green, um, I'm pretty skittish on everything. I just feel like that's, the constant selling pressure on bonds will just sort of permeate into everything else, like a, almost like a wet blanket. Um, and John, let's talk about if you were, let's say you're running Merrill's model. Um, what are you doing this year? Like what, what theoretically would you be doing? Because I only see the flows, but models are a big part of the flows now. So what, what, what would you do? Yeah, it's a good question. And what I... I but we're actually, you know, we have model portfolios at Global X as well, and I'm sure they're not doing anything vastly different on the asset allocation models, is increasing quality. Uh, companies with strong cash flows that are less reliant on the capital markets as short-term rates rise. Uh, so funding costs could be a problem for, uh, you know, more growthier companies, but an Apple or a Microsoft, which you know, they don't necessarily have to borrow. Um, so you're looking for those stable companies. So while those are not necessarily value, but companies with strong cash flow, stable dividends, potentially rising dividends. It's an area that you certainly want to be in in this market. Um, and with regards to on the fixed income side, shorter duration. I mean, we don't know exactly where long rates are going to end up. So uh, Hold on. Time out. Well, now, here I don't get the shorter. I mean, I get it because, oh, you know, cash is safe, right? Yep. But is it safe if inflation is, what, 8 9%, aren't you immediately losing that? And isn't that where the Fed is raising rates? So I, I don't is – or is it that bad that that's, that's actually the best spot is to sit there and lose 8%? Well, I mean, yes, there's the inflation argument, but you don't want to lose money, right? So like if you're – It could be worse, basically. Yeah, treasuries okay. are down 20% this year. And I, would you rather be in cash or down 20%? So I, that's why for now, yeah, shorter duration. It. At some point, we'll go longer on duration. But, you know, if we are not at the bottom on the equity markets, and volatility is pretty low. Um, there's a lot of volatility it's with respect to equities. On the interest rate side, it, it's high. So there's a, I think there is some room to run on the equity side. But if that happens, then they're gonna everyone's going to plow into treasuries. You mentioned how the professional investor sort of saw this coming and sold off already, and it was retail that was a little, little late to that. And, and I'm wondering, like, when, what, what are the professionals watching right now? And especially, you know, the Global X kind of institutional clients, like, what, it, when does this become a buying opportunity again? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think we're there yet. Um, today, you're getting a little bit of a bounce because that's, you know, just what happens when you have eight straight weeks of declines. But when you see for, you know, more capitulation, th that's when I think there'll be some bottom fishing. I think, you know, when you see some bellwethers uh, go down further, then I think there'll be some buying in the market and that'll kind of lift all boats. The capitulation. 
Capitulation. <laughs> it yeah, is I mean, the word of the year. Yeah, and yeah. People on Twitter use it all the time. It's like, oh, capitulation told you. Like The Bears are loving this. They're like, oh, we're not enough. Like I sometimes I show ARC, and there, sometimes that's, that's you know uh, inflow week here and there. And they're like, see, they haven't capitulated yet. Anyway, I, yeah. I, I you know what's worse about that though is that everybody's talking about it because I can remember in 2020 at the lows in 2020 when we were talking about our capitulation indicators and we were talking about the fact that at that point only two like percent March of stocks, 2020 yeah, here yeah two percent of stocks were trading above their 50-day moving average and RSI had just crashed through the floor and no stocks were rising and we're putting notes out talking about we're here. This is a capitulation moment. The Fed is swooping in. The Fed and the fiscal policymakers are swooping in at the same time. Now's the time to buy. And everyone told me I was crazy. Now everybody's on this train of look for the capitulation. This worries me because it means to me that people are hoping for a bottom to form. And you have to get to a point to have a true sentiment washout. You have to get to a point where there's no hope for a bottom left. That's that's how you find a low in the equity market. Like I know dark. this is so, so dark. Hold on, so hold on, hold on. Hold on. If, but that's realistic. If like, that's where a, you were in 2018. That's where you were in 2016. I mean, 2016, people were telling me when I was at Wells Fargo, this is the next financial crisis, right? That's the, the darkness is overwhelming, and people who get bullish at that moment are completely villainous. So basically, we need to find Twitter mentions of the word capitulation and if when it starts to go down, that's that's then we the moment. To buy. They is, have is, finally given up. The more up. that word is used, the more it's actually not capitulation. Is it, do I have that right? Yeah, because they're looking for it. Yep. This is the other thing. I get so many questions come my way right now, saying, "Well, when is the Fed put?" Finally, everybody has given up and said there is no Fed put anymore. <laughs> that's the time to move. You have to get this outright existential crisis. Yeah, yeah. complete. I give up. I can't make any money in stocks anymore. But there's so many fundamental things that we just haven't fully lived through yet. There's inflation. Has it peaked? Um, what's going on with China and, and slower growth in China? Um, we've just started on the interest rate cycle. 75 basis points. You know, I think we could go to 3 even 4%. And they're going to go that high to stop inflation because they you – know, obviously, this is not the 70s when you had inflation for 10 years. But Powell does not want to be known as the inflation guy. So he's going to squash inflation. There's a war. But there's what if that doesn't happen, too? Like, there's this, the case that, you know, we raise interest rates and inflation doesn't get tamed. And then the bottom... Then they raise them more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they, clearly. They crush demand. Yeah. So, I mean, and then you have potentially like a Volcker moment in all of this, right? Like, it does make you feel like this could be a long, long, long year. It does. I think a lot of things have been priced into the equity market, frankly. But there is this lingering degree of hope. Um, and, you know, I get a lot of people tell me about Russia and China and the fundamentals are terrible, even though the fundamentals are fine. You know, so there's a lot there is a lot of capitulation out there. The equity market recognizes a tremendous amount of risk. But there's that lingering amount of hope that just needs to be wiped out of the market. And then you finally have your sentiment wash out. Invesco QQQ is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Want to rethink what's possible? How about being an investor, not just in your future, but the future? Well, it all starts with Invesco QQQ. For more than 25 years, this single ETF has given investors a direct line to the NASDAQ 100. That's 100 leading innovators behind advances in personal tech, science, and robotics, just to name a few. And you can access it all with Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. 
There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So here's a question I have. So in past sell-offs, the role of passive hasn't been as big, especially in 2008. So take someone like me, okay? I've got a mortgage, two kids, saving for college. With the money that matters, I have, I'm in low-cost index funds, right? And I think it's a lot of people now. Um, am I part of the capitulation? Because I am resigned to this being the best deal. I want to be in stocks. I believe over the long term they work for me. I'm not selling. Do I need to sell for capitulation to happen? Or are you looking at more of the active players? Yeah. I'm looking more at the active players because okay. I actually don't see that the institutions have capitulated. I think the retail universe has. But, so but, I see well, it a little bit differently. When we say retail universe, yeah. though, again, we are talking about the non-sort of vanguardian yeah. passive No, I'm, I'm looking at more of the traders, right? Okay. So yeah. if, if I'm looking at retail and retail's impact on the day-to-day movements in the equity market, it's the traders. And the traders left the market starting a year ago and they haven't come back. They've just, you know, they got wiped out with the meme craze. They got further wiped out through the, for, through the contraction in the first quarter of this year. And they've largely just left the building. But when we look, when we actually analyze buys and sells and the flows of the institutional accounts, there's a survey that State Street actually does, which is quite good at this. And that survey of um, institutional sentiment has historically reached a level of about 70. It is currently at 90. Above 100 is a risk to the market for, you know, tops forming. So we're at 90 now. We've come down below 100, but we haven't gotten to 70, which is the typical low point. So I think you've got more institutional selling that actually needs to happen to really create that big long-term low. I think the retail investors that are going to leave have left. The rest just stick around, and they always stick around. Like I, too, don't sell my exposure because I've got to work for the next 40 years to get my kids through college, so I'm just going to hang on. And I do think that's somewhat different than the, back in the day, you're in an active fund that's underperforming and your thought is, well, I should go to a manager who's outperforming now. In an index fund, you never have that thought. You're like, eh, I'm not going to go chase something. I'm fine. I, again, as you know, I study this topic all the time. I don't know if that effect will create a more stable base, which could have the effect of drawing this out longer because there won't be that total vomit moment because there are going to be the Vanguard flows always coming in. 
and having some sort of bid on the market and maybe making hope stay alive for longer. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to get the whole sentiment for the retail universe in one number, right? I think the retail trader feels terrible about the market. I think the long-term investor is just going to hang on. <laughs> the TikTok on. videos are starting you to do get have, I think, you, yeah, it is. It's pretty bad, right? But you have, I, you, you bring up the generational divides all the time. So I'll get on that bandwagon and talk about the boomers who are retiring, who are more accustomed to calling up their broker when they want to buy and sell and any, any individual stock. Those people are just getting their first quarter statements, absorbing those statements now. And we might be at that moment where they say, oh, wow. This is actually happening. You know, the doctors and lawyers and people that have better things to do than to look at the financial market on a daily basis. They're feeling it at the pump and they're feeling it at the grocery store and they're feeling it when they go out to restaurants. But they probably really haven't paid that much attention to financial markets because they don't have to like we do. So they're just now starting to absorb the first quarter losses. And we may see that dump in some of those positions yet to come. I I totally agree. You you talk to friends who are not in the the financial business uh, and yeah, they're they're aware of what's going on in terms, but they haven't looked at their statements. They don't often look at their statements and they're like, ah, it'll come back. We've lived through this before. But when you see 20% down and who knows what some people have, it could be be more than that. That could be cause for further selling. But what, what about this idea? If you go back and look at the past five years, even with this year, the S&P is up 11% annualized. But you're only, historically, you're only supposed to get like 8 or 9%. So, I mean, isn't shouldn't we like, are we a little coddled and spoiled here with the market? Shouldn't we just be like, look, this year should suck. Um, and that's going to get us back to the 9% average. That's what I was promised. And the volatility is the price of admission. Um, do you think more people are kind of mentally getting to that space? Or do you think it's the same old thing where it's like, oh my God, the number's red, let me sell. I think there, there was a lot of FOMO, you know, during the pandemic. We were sitting at home. Many people had uh, extra money because of all the stimulus programs. They were investing in meme stocks. They're, things were going wild. You wanted to get in. I think a lot of that is being wiped out, realizing that, you know, with cryptos, I'm not, 40% of the people who are in cryptos are not making money at this point. So, you know, maybe I'm not going to go that route. Um, and some of the meme stocks... Well, that was kind of fun, but now I'm back to work and I have to commute and I have to whatnot. So I think more normalized returns are coming back into people's mind, but again, still painful at, when it happens. You, you know, you go to a certain level on, on your, you look at your statement and then you lose 20%. You, th- you think you lost 20%. You, you know, you, you don't remember. Right, you don't put it into annualized 10-year return. No, okay. it's like, it's. I do, but. Uh, what happened yesterday? <laughs> What's, what am I going to get tomorrow? I, I play yeah. men's psychological games with myself. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Bitcoin or crypto, John, because I think that that has a really firm place in today's psychology and today's sentiment. And I do worry that the crypto fanatics do watch daily prices and they do feel the pain uh, because they're they're fanatical about their positions. They're not like the long only S and P five hundred investor like you and I, Eric, who are just going to hold on into perpetuity under the guise that it'll eventually come back. They're much more emotionally invested in this as an idea. And I I do worry about the psychological impact of losses in that market following on to or feeding into losses in the equity market, because they might have exposure in the equity market. Their parents might have exposure in the equity market. They have to cover their children's positions and there's a lot of risk-taking that's gone on in that market 
that I think we're really struggling to totally capture. And it certainly is, has a great potential to have psychological impacts, behavioral impacts. And, and it's a 24-hour market. Yeah. You can get up in the middle of the night and check what That's it, 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 People <laughs> used to like that. Now they don't like it. Yeah. No. <laughs> and, and so, but isn't there... Are, is there is the hope here actually a return to normal? And those yeah. traders that you mentioned that are on the sidelines and have been on the sidelines forever are like, I'm out for a while. But yeah. like, is there a version of this yeah. that normal emerges again? Yeah, I, that's the one shining sort of silver lining of any corrective process. In particular, this one is I do believe it is deflating any mini bubbles that may have developed during the pandemic. I mean, we have a lot of concentration risk that developed in the S&P 500 really Everybody wanted to own a handful of stocks, and that's it. We had retail investors that were dabbling in a market that they'd never even touched before, got burned and probably won't dabble so much, may become longer-term investors, really sort of rationalize their exposure a little bit. You probably had a, you know, a whole group of people jump into the crypto markets in 2021 after the magnificent gains have now suffered losses and are learning you know, investment lessons that will hopefully last a lifetime and lead to a degree of rationality that didn't exist for the last two years. But there were certainly some mini bubbles that developed during that pandemic experience that are now being deflated, which leaves us at a position of more equilibrium, if you will, when we're all when this is all said and done. But you also have a situation where we, we're not likely not going to be reliant on the Fed going forward. Yeah. So with the Fed removing liquidity, rolling off their balance sheet um, just in a few weeks, raising rates. And likely there's there's not going to be monetary policy uh, and, and fiscal policy that will su- support the consumer. And the consumer is going to be f- stretched. So we're going to go into a period of adjustment. And I think over the long term, we'll have much lower returns than we've had even since 2008 because the I Fed's mean, been there the whole time. The S&P was flat during the 2000s, right? About Oh, it had a great run from 2002 to no, no, 2007. But, well, I'm but, going to 2010. Yeah. You got to, you can. Like you, you could have a decade where it just doesn't go up. Yeah. You can. You can have a very volatile decade. Yeah, you it could be like five good years, one horrible year. Sell-offs. Or it could just be a nice, not nice, but a long, slow, normal. negative 5%, negative 2%, up normal. 5 Yeah. <laughs> normal. Yeah, normal. It's like, you returns. know what it is. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, it's like the patient doesn't have the drug anymore and it has to like, it's going through withdrawal. And it's got to live to like work without that Fed hit, mm-hmm. which I think is probably the the moral of the story. So other regular things matter now, which is probably good, right? Clash flow. Yeah, I mean, look, the alternative, <laughs> the alternative here, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the alternative Crazy. is it could be a lot worse if the Fed weren't addressing the inflationary scenario, but they are addressing it. They are committed to it. They need to remain committed to it to get it as, you know, right size and normalized policy to the degree possible because they were behind the curve. They have to do this or we risk having a much more volatile long-term economic climate than we've ever faced. But to the degree that they can right size policy and remove some of this sort of sugar high that we had developed in this, you know, bubbly market, the faster we can get that done and sort of cleanse the excess and move on, the better. But if they were to delay it, it would be much more painful a year, two years, three years from now. There, there, there's some other things that get in, a sh- in the short term that I think could help the market. Um, perhaps if uh, the Biden administration removes the tariffs on China, that certainly could be helpful. Maybe a, a, t- a gas tax holiday. That's, those are short-term things. Not speaking to your, to your long-term 
your thesis. But in the short run, there's there's some events that that could make the stock market pop and the end of the war. Potentially. Yeah, end of the war could be a huge catalyst. Yeah. I totally agree. But not for energy. <laughs> no. All right, we'll leave it there. John, Gina, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Baltrinas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Stacey Wong. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.